Our Lord, we thank you, and we come trembling at your word. This is your holy and authoritative, inerrant word, and we do well when we come with an attitude of humility and submission, and I pray that you would um, stir up in us, in our heart, Lord, these very attitudes. Help us to learn, help us to I yearn to know Christ more. And I pray that you would open up his heart for us this morning, that you would instruct us in the way that we should go as we go into the world, as we go into our places, that we may, Lord, go with hope and go with compassion for the lost. Teach us what it means to have a heart of Christ this morning for one another and for the lost, we pray. We pray, Lord, and we ask, unless you do this for us, we would never be able to accomplish this on our, by ourselves. Lord, we pray, work in our hearts through your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Over the past nine months... We have been working our way through this gospel, the first gospel of the New Testament. And today we come to the end of the first section, the gospel of the kingdom. We are going to wrap up Matthew chapter 9 in this series that we began in January of this year. Again and again, we have seen Jesus tirelessly show kindness and mercy to sinners, healing multitudes, and speaking to them concerning his kingdom. We have seen how beginning with chapter 4 and into chapter 9, Jesus' ministry was to assemble a group of disciples who would be with him constantly, every step of the way, to observe him, to look at what he's doing, to learn to trust him, as well as to learn from him. As his ministering to the crowds, you will notice and probably can recall back to our previous studies how over and over again, his focus is primarily on the disciples, on his disciples. We notice that as Jesus began to teach the Sermon on the Mount, it was his disciples who were the primary audience. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 5, we will see that when he saw the crowds, it says, verse 1, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. So there's this emphasis on his disciples. After the sermon, as Jesus authenticates his ministry by performing various miracles, much of the work is being done with his disciples around him. You would recall that Peter or or that Jesus is at Peter's home. He's with them in the boat. He's dining with them along with sinners and tax collectors. They travel with Jesus to Jairus' house where Jesus raises his daughter. This is all intentional, friends. Jesus came, remember, to make an invisible God visible. He came to save that which was lost. And the way he would do that is primarily through his compassion. And he called the disciples to teach and to equip them that they might carry on his mission along with them because they would become the extension of his ministry to sinners. So as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 9, it's time for Jesus now to equip more workers for this mission. In order to do this, there's some training involved. This is the purpose of our section here, Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus is like this all-star player who is now transitioning to become the player coach. He's not just playing, he's coaching as he's been all along, but now it intensifies. He will still be very much engaged in ministry because his ministry is not over. He is going towards the cross where he will 
lay down his life for our sin. And get this, as he's going there, the most important thing he wants his disciples to learn, and us this morning by extension, is what his heart is all about. He doesn't want just to uh, teach the methods. Here's how you do this. Here's what you do. John and Peter, come around and observe what I'm doing so that you will do the same. That's not really his focus and his emphasis. He wants them to learn his heart. Christ's heart, friends, is primarily a heart of compassion that yearns and and breaks for people who are ravaged by sin. And if we're going to imitate our Lord, it must begin with us imitating his heart, not just his methods. So I invite you to look with me at verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9. We will read these verses and we will study them one by one. Matthew continues to write in verse 35 and says, Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As we look at these verses, I want us to see the main thread of of, um, this section, and, and it is this that our motivation for faithful proclamation of the gospel is rooted in deep compassion for them and is stimulated by earnest prayer. That the motivation to proclaim Christ as all-sufficient, as all-glorious, is rooted, is motivated by deep compassion to those who we proclaim and is stimulated by earnest prayer. Now let's break this passage down into into three sections. How can we imitate Christ's heart towards one another and the lost of this world? Well, here we are presented with three ways. Number one is proclaim faithfully as Jesus proclaimed. That's the first thing. Proclaim faithfully as Jesus proclaimed. Number two, we are to perceive deeply as Jesus perceived. And then thirdly, we look at pray eagerly as Jesus prescribed. So we are to proclaim faithfully. We are to perceive deeply. And then number three, pray eagerly. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These verses at the end of the chapter are are transitional, which, which Matthew writes to set up the next section of his gospel. Namely, this next section will focus on the mission of the kingdom. First, the gospel of the kingdom, and in chapter 10 now, the mission. Christ will gather the 12 disciples to instruct them and then to send them out to proclaim to the nation of Israel that their king had arrived. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in verse 35 here, this verse serves as a sort of a summary for the last five chapters of his gospel. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter four. If you have your Bibles open, if you don't have a Bible, maybe pull out your phone, open up a Bible app and follow along as we'll be flipping a little bit here during our study here this morning. Matthew chapter 4, look back at verse 23, and look what Matthew says. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Does this sound familiar? Yes. It's almost identical wording to what we just read in 9.35. So why is Matthew telling us the same thing? Well, these two verses, 4.23 and 9.35, they function as sort of two bookends 
to the event that takes place in between Matthew uh, 5 and Matthew 9. You know, in our preaching class at the seminary, multiple classes, I often heard pastors emphasize the need for preachers to repeat their proposition or, or their main points which they are going to preach. Just repeat. So, so they often said, you know what? When you preach, start by telling them what you're going to tell them. And then you tell them, and then you wrap up by telling them what you just told them. Right? Three things, same thing. I think they got that from Matthew here. Or whoever they got that from got it from Matthew. Because that's exactly what Matthew does here, right? In 423, Matthew tells us what he's going to tell us. That Jesus is going to go around all of Galilee. He's going to preach and he's going to teach and he's going to heal. And then in Matthew 5 through 9, Matthew tells us in great detail what he just told us in 423. Here's what Jesus did. Here's his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's his works, Matthew 8 and 9. And then in 935, Matthew provides a summary statement telling us what he just told us. We've already seen the words and and the works of Christ, but Matthew wants to stress something in this verse, and I want us to consider as well, go back to 9.35, and look at this. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages. Jesus was faithful to proclaim to all. That is his point. If we didn't get that in 423, and if we didn't get that in 5 through 9 of Matthew, he wants us to focus our attention again here and say, listen, if you missed this, I want you to focus that Jesus was faithful to his mission to proclaim the gospel to all, all the cities and villages. And so it got me thinking, um, how many Galilean cities and villages were there at that time? Because that, that seems a lot. And, and I pulled up D.A. Carson's commentary, and D.A. Carson's, he cites Josephus, Jewish historian who wrote One Generation After Christ, and, and he estimated that, quote, Galilee had 204 cities and villages, each with no fewer than 15,000 persons. At the rate of two villages or towns per day, three months would be required to visit all of them with no time off for the Sabbath. Jesus, verse 35, is going throughout all. And if we believe in the inspired word of God, we must conclude that he went to all the cities and all the villages proclaiming the gospel. I mean, stop and think for a second, the amount of energy it would require Jesus to walk to each town, the emotional and mental fatigue to deal with people like us. Like us, friends weak and sick, and they need of great help. Our wives have problems dealing with just one person. Jesus is dealing with all of them, healing and preaching and being kind to them. Matthew wants us to see that in spite of this toll, Jesus was faithful to proclaim to all. But more than just being faithful to proclaim to all the people, it was what he proclaimed that was so glorious. What was he doing? Look at verse 35 again. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was faithful to proclaim the faithfulness and mercy of God to his people. He's teaching in their synagogues and he's proclaiming the gospel. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 17, immediately after his testing in the wilderness, Jesus began his public ministry by teaching and preaching. And he said this, repent. That was the first word, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what was so significant about this proclamation? Well, from long ago, God had made numerous promises to his people Israel, didn't he? That there would come a day when the nation will no longer be scattered because of their sins. God will come and he will forgive their sins and will bless them with a new heart that they would respond to God no longer in disobedience but in worship. He will rescue them from all their afflictions and he will be their 
king. Then hundreds of years later, a child is born to Mary. He grows up in full obedience to his earthly parents as well as his heavenly father. He gets baptized, he enters ministry and proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time. And Christ is traveling throughout these cities and villages one by one, making this royal proclamation to Israel that the king has come to save sinners and to rule over his people in kindness because God is faithful to his promises. That's why. And Jesus demonstrates this faithfulness. Matthew himself In chapter 8, you will recall, was called to follow this king as he briefly tells his own story. Now Matthew writes this gospel after all the events of Christ's life and death and resurrection, and he writes that we too might respond to the gospel call of Christ, that we may believe in the Lord Jesus so that our lives may be radically affected as well. Christ is faithful to proclaim the gospel. And at this point in history, friends, just want to remind you that the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming, it doesn't contain the same ingredients that we are called to go and proclaim. There's no cross here. He's not preaching the cross. You don't see it here. He's not preaching the resurrection at this point. But he's going around and he's telling everyone who would listen that he is the Messiah. I am the Messiah. The cross and the resurrection, they they come later. We now preach that. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says. That's what we preach. That's who we preach. But at this point in time, he's preaching the gospel and saying, I am the king. I am the Messiah. Trust my words. If you don't trust my words, look at what I'm doing. Because in addition to his proclamation, Jesus is performing all kinds of signs and wonders which authenticate his claims of being the Messiah. And again, Matthew stresses that Jesus wasn't picking and choosing. You know, I'll be, I'll be gracious to this guy and, and this sickness I can actually take care of. I can meet this need. But this one, no, maybe not. Maybe this is for someone else. That's not what he's doing. He is healing every kind of disease and every kind of of sickness. Whoever comes in contact with Christ is forever changed, is forever transformed. Every kind of disease. Why is this significant? What's the point that he's trying to make? Well, not all sicknesses and diseases were healed in the Old Testament, were they? No, not all. There were some, right, like the healing of the blind and the mute, for instance. They were reserved to mark out the Messiah. And Matthew wants his readers to know this is the one. I just told you that Jesus healed this blind man. I just told you that he resurrected this daughter. I just told you that he cast out the demon and he healed the mute man. This is him. Listen to him. The point of this passage here in Matthew 9 is to emphasize the glory of this Messiah. Pay attention to him. Pay attention to the gospel he's proclaiming. And Jesus heals them all. The lepers, the lame, the demon-possessed, paralytics, dead, blind, mute. It doesn't matter. He heals them all. He goes one by one, person to person, teaching and proclaiming and healing that sinners might know the love of God. And we need to be reminded of this this morning. How do we imitate the heart of Christ towards one another and towards the lost of this world? Listen, friends, we don't have our own version of the gospel. We're not to be like, in this sense, like Christ. We don't have our own version of the gospel. We're not sent out in order to heal diseases and sicknesses. Yet Jesus sets an example for us to follow, doesn't he? Have you believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then the call for us as the rest of the New Testament emphasizes, go preach the same gospel. Don't manufacture anything. Learn what Jesus preached. Learn what the apostles were taught and go preach and go proclaim faithfully the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have anything else to give to the world except Christ crucified, right? 
I love what Paul does in Colossians chapter 1 after declaring that God in his son has reconciled us to himself, that we might be presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In fact, what he is saying here is that the effect of the gospel took place. We were transformed. We were rescued. We believed. You exercise faith. After this happened, he follows that up by saying in 128, Colossians 128, this, If this is true, then we proclaim him only. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's only one solution to our problem and that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and no one else and nothing else. That's why when writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says, listen, I can come to you And I can bring you philosophy and I can argue my case, but I chose, deliberately chose to know nothing among you except Christ and him, what? Crucified. Shameful? Yes. He says it's foolishness to the world. There's no appeal in it. But those who have been appointed to eternal life only respond to the proclamation of the gospel and nothing else. Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. How can we imitate the heart of Christ? First of all, church, we faithfully proclaimed what he proclaimed, and that is himself. We faithfully proclaim Christ to everybody. We don't discriminate because there's only one solution. But here's the question we need to answer. What motivated Jesus to be faithful to his mission to preach the gospel? What caused Jesus to go out and to love the unlovable and to be merciful to those who deserved judgment, like us? I mean, think about it. You're sitting here. Just consider this for a moment. What causes God in his son to love us right now? What is it in us? Or maybe there's something outside of us. Maybe it's something that belongs to him and him only that causes him to lavish his love and grace on us. Matthew here tells us that Jesus saw and perceived something about the crowds and that, that moved him to love and to serve these desperate sinners like us. Look number two, perceive deeply as Jesus perceived. Proclaim faithfully as he proclaimed, but in order to proclaim faithfully, we need to perceive something. We need to be motivated by something. We can't just go around and proclaiming because we constantly encourage one another, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim, teach. Go into your schools at home, everywhere, proclaim the gospel, but for some reason, we often stop short. Why? And, and, and here it is. Look at this, verse 36. Seeing The people, stop right there, seeing the people. Jesus saw what others did not see. Matthew tells us that he saw the crowds. And friends, it's no small thing that Jesus saw them. It's like we need to pause here. This reminds us that Jesus wasn't in in too great of a hurry. He wasn't so busy that, that he didn't look at the needs before him. We are told that he he took the time to see the people and the needs that they had. In fact, the way Matthew here structures this phrase at the beginning of verse 36 indicates that it was his careful seeing that led him to his feeling something. He pauses to see and to observe and to perceive something. And this perception causes him to feel something. Friends, sometimes we don't like taking the time to look at the needs, real needs of others. Often it's because we, we know that if we do take the time to look and to consider, we will feel more deeply about what we're seeing than we want to feel. At times we don't just want to, you know, we, we don't want to get involved. 
Yet, here, here it is. Here's the lesson for us, church, here. If we're going to imitate Christ's heart, we need to take the time to see what he sees. And it's not just a glance. It's observing. It's understanding a deeper reality than what you see right here in front of you immediately. What happens when, when Jesus pauses and when he looks at the crowds? It says, Jesus, he was moved with compassion. He felt deeply about them. He felt so much for these people that it hurt. Literally, it hurt. The term for compassion that is used here where it says in verse 36, he felt compassion. This term refers to a feeling in the gut. Literally speaks of someone being moved in the gut. There was this physical reaction like, oh, something is going on. We all felt this one time or another, especially if you had kids or if you have kids. How many times have you felt your heart almost stop for a split second when you saw your kids injure themselves or were very close to injuring themselves? It was like you skip a beat. You start feeling it in your stomach. And you were moved to respond immediately. Maybe you've witnessed an injury take place and and it almost like you you can't really speak you can't react but you pause and it hurts it hurts your heart it hurts your guts and then you rush over to see how you can help this is exactly what's going on with christ seeing the crowds this is what jesus is feeling and friends as we read this compassion As we read this about our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to conclude that this is the most accurate picture of who God is. For Jesus explains God, doesn't he? Isn't that what John 1.18 says? He has explained him. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Isaiah 49, verse 13, prophecy, shout for joy, O heavens, And rejoice, O earth, break forth into joyful singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. When you think about that time, Isaiah says, the time when your Messiah comes, shout for joy because the Lord in his Messiah will have compassion and love on his children. Why such a strong feeling? Matthew explains here, why did Jesus react this way? For or because, verse 36 says, they, the crowds, the people that made up the crowds were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. It wasn't their physical destitution merely that caused Jesus to feel this way, but primarily the spiritual destitution. Other translations that you may have open here, they say harassed and helpless or distressed and dejected. The first word here that we see in verse 36, they were distressed, has a root meaning of having your skin torn off. It's like fish, filleted fish. As might happen to a sheep wandering among the sharp rocks. As you go to places you probably shouldn't go, as you wander away from your shepherd, you begin to hit against the sharp rocks and literally your skin is filleted. It has the idea of being battered and bruised and ripped apart, worn out. And he looks at the crowd and he's seen them battered and bruised, worn out, as if their skin is ripped off of them. The second word here, means to be thrown down, prone, and helpless, as would happen to the sheep that had suffered a mortal wound. It basically refers to a corpse lying on the ground, motionless, dejected. You can't encourage this sheep or this person to get up and do something. They're done. They're wiped out. This is what Jesus is seeing looking at the people. And he's not, listen, he's not fooled by their religious fronts. He's not impressed by all of the works of righteousness. He sees the heart. And when he looked, 
He saw the heart of these people as wounded and torn by the effects of sin. They were inwardly devastated and in a hopeless condition. And then he concludes that this happened because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were trapped, friends, in a system led by scribes and Pharisees. And instead of leading them to God, these scribes and Pharisees burdened them with laws and rules God never commanded. Those that were supposed to be leading them were not leading them to God, but instead were like wolves. They were wolves, and Jesus calls them out on that in Matthew chapter 23. You wolves, leading them away from the truth, from the proper worship of God. These sheep had no shepherd. And like a sheep without someone to protect and to guide, they became bruised and battered and disheartened. Do you remember God's charge to the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34? Once you turn there, Ezekiel 34, I just want to read a couple of uh, verses here for us just to remind ourselves. Man, God cares for his sheep. Friends, Jesus cares for his sheep. They're not our sheep. We are his sheep. And and the way Jesus cares for his sheep today in the church is exactly the same way God cared for Israel, his sheep that he chose. Open Ezekiel 34. Read verse 2. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? That's why they're laying on the floor, because it's all about you. You make it all about you and not them. Look at verse 4. Those who are sickly, you, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus, looking at the crowds and they seeing that they are distressed, they're disheartened, they're not fed, they're not taken care of, they're not provided for, they're not being led. Verse 6, my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was none to search or seek for them. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them. You know why this is an egregious mistake and sin? It's because these people are God's sheep. They're not their sheep. And behold, I will demand my sheep from them, God says. But skip down to verse 11. I mean, in the midst of all of this, look look at the promises of God. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. This is glorious. I myself, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament says, we'll go after my sheep and we'll search them out and we'll seek for them and we'll restore them to myself. And verse 12, I will care. Verse 13, I will bring, I will feed. Verse 14, I will feed. Verse 15, I will feed, I will lead. Verse 16, I will seek, I will destroy you for not doing that. I will feed you with judgment. Verse 17, I will judge you. Wow. But look at verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them. So who is this servant David? How can this be? Uh, Is this the son of David that we read about in Matthew, earlier in Matthew chapter 9? Son of David, have mercy on us. So Is this God, Yahweh, or is this son of David? It's both. It's both. 
This is the only way that verse 11 of Ezekiel 34 and verse 23 make sense. The only way the people of God are taken care of is if God himself becomes the shepherd. And we care for them in such great compassion. And 600 years later, Matthew records a fulfillment of the prophecy God made through Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And he says this in Matthew chapter 2 verse 6. For from you, from out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, what? Shepherd my people, Israel. And shortly after that, uh, John 10, 11, we read, Jesus comes up and says, I am the good shepherd. You know those, sh- those shepherds that fail? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm about to do that. I'm about to demonstrate that my shepherding is not about me. I'm not taking from you to feed me. No, I am going to serve you to the point of laying my life down for you. And in Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verse 28, this great shepherd, the son of David, looks out at the crowds. And in verse 21, he says, woe to you, Chorazin for rejecting me. But in verse 28, he says, Come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He feels what no one else feels, church. This word is used only in reference to Christ in the gospel. It identifies him as the promised Messiah who will feel compassion for the weak and the sick and the broken and the destitute. And it is also the key to his commission, not just to his mission, but his commission of the disciples in the next chapter. And then in, verse, in Matthew 28, when he says, go into all the world, and then in Acts and into to this day. Church, do we perceive and to, do, do we feel what Jesus felt? Do we perceive what he perceived? Are you moved by the physical destitution of others around you? But more than that, are you moved by the spiritual destitution of those who are around you? I mean, how many people on your street corners? How many people at the store? How many people even around here do you see living with absolutely no direction in life, with absolutely no purpose? How many do you see with no spiritual protection, no spiritual provision, no guidance? You know, it has been said that, quote, all around we see men and women, young and old, who are harassed and helpless, bruised and battered by life, lost and alone in the world, resorting to pleasures or drugs or anything else that they think will make life more tolerable or death more acceptable, unquote. Do you have compassion for them or or are you inclined to avoid them like the Pharisees? And we have to perceive deeply in order to proclaim faithfully. One flows out of the other. Maybe you haven't taken the time to pause and to consider those around you because you may be just too focused on yourself or on your family and you may be going through some, some troubles and trials and you're just like, I am just trying to get out of this mess myself. Or maybe you're, you're, you don't think the folks around you are, are all that bad. You look around and you're, you're like, maybe like the scribes and Pharisees who, who are not perceptive of the spiritual reality of these people. They don't look battered. They don't look bruised. Listen, no matter how good the people are at presenting themselves in a positive light, Jesus here gives us the reality. When he looked out among the people, he saw their reality, not their make-believe show. Jesus sees through all the fluff that we present often to one another. When he did that, he saw people greatly beaten down by sin and life. For those of us who have personally experienced his compassion, man, we're called to reflect the same, aren't we? And before Jesus sends out his disciples in in Matthew chapter 10, he's not concerned so much about the methodology. What he's concerned about their heart. 
Do you feel what I'm feeling? Do you understand the reality that I'm seeing, that I understand? How do you begin then to imitate Christ's compassion? And how do you continue to imitate his compassion for one another here in this congregation and to the lost of this world? It's very instructive to learn that after stating here in verse 37 that the harvest is ready for reaping, Jesus does not say, hey, get out there and start harvesting. He doesn't say that. Instead, he calls his disciples to pray. Pray. So if the motive to proclamation is compassion, then the means to compassion is prayer. Which brings us to the final point, pray eagerly, as Jesus prescribes. Proclaim faithfully. Perceive deeply. Pray eagerly. Jesus here, if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, in verses 37 and 38, he switches from a simile about sheep to a metaphor about the harvest. What is this harvest that he's referring to? And you might come across different interpretation, but one that is prevalent um, interprets this harvest to mean judgment, judgment, because there are passages that refer to the coming judgment using the same metaphor of harvest. So in light of the coming judgment, pray that God would send out more workers. But is this what Jesus is referring to? Think about this. Earlier in his ministry, John in chapter 4 he records for us in 435 this message of Christ. Verse 34, or uh, yeah, verse 34 of John chapter 4, listen as I read. He says, Jesus said, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Same thing. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering up fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So is this a harvest unto judgment or eternal life? It seems if Jesus is referring to the same here in Matthew chapter 10, that he's referring to a harvest that is gathering up of souls into eternal life, not judgment here. But considering the context here of Matthew, Jesus moves from town to town to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Many are following. Many are listening to his message. This is a great harvest that needs to be brought in into the barn, Jesus says. Because he says the fields are white for harvest. Look around. Many people are ready to be reaped into the kingdom of God. But here's the problem. The harvest is plentiful. Look around. All of these destitute folks, lost, dispirited, without a heart, sinfully beaten down, torn apart. Look at the harvest is plentiful. But here's the problem. The workers are few. The workers are few. How few? Very few. Very few. Think about this. Up to this point here, there are only two preachers who are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's few. Two preachers. Who are they? Jesus. And then before Jesus, John the Baptist preached exactly the same message in Matthew 3. And by the way, one of them is locked up already for preaching the gospel. So what was few became even fewer. Nobody else is preaching the gospel. Very few. No one really understands what's going on. Only John the Baptist understood because it was revealed to him by the Spirit. Jesus obviously understands his mission and therefore he's proclaiming it to everybody else. So now Jesus begins to recruit more help. He begins to impact his disciples and say, listen, you need to understand something. You need to see something that I'm on the mission. My name will be great. That's the only name that will be proclaimed under heaven through which men will be saved, we find out in Acts chapter 4. But the workers are few. And in the next chapter here, we find out, Matthew chapter 10, 
that he instructs his disciples and sends them out. Look at 10.7, 10.7, and as you go, preach. Here's the message that you're going to take to the world. Well, at this point, just to Israel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's exactly the same message Jesus preached in 4.17, and John preached in 3. Go and preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few short months after this, Luke records for us in Luke chapter 10 that he enlarges this group from 12 to 70 and he sends them out on the same exact mission. And then at the end of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gives his disciples the great commission to go out into all the world after his death and resurrection. And we know what happens in Acts as the message of Christ is spread throughout the known world. Church, I want to encourage you today that even in our very dark world, the kingdom of Christ is never losing its potential for growth. It is always expanding. Be encouraged because the mission of Christ is always the busiest and it is the most promising work of the universe. The harvest is plentiful, he says. This is no time to be idle those who love Jesus the most will be gripped with a sense of urgency for the work of spreading the fame of his name. The problem, it appears, is the same today as it's always been, the workers of you. But what does Jesus say? Pray, pray. I mean, perhaps you're not surprised that Jesus is a compassionate savior and shepherd. He was promised from long ago, so you're like, well, yes, yeah, someone had to do it, so... Jesus is. But this might be the biggest surprise of the passage. You would have thought that Jesus would say, if this is true, get out there and start harvesting. Go and be that person. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he calls us to pray. He says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into the harvest. What? What does that mean? And this is very important. Listen, Jesus is full of compassion towards these people. He's faithful to proclaim the message, and he is eager to show love to all, to all. But he warns his disciples, and he says, you can't do it. Even as you see this reality, you can't do it. You have to ask first. You have to pray. You have to plead. And you have to ask me to do it for you and me to do it in you and me to do it through you. Pray. The Lord, he says, pray, beseech the Lord. Ask the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. The harvest, all the people in Matthew or in John chapter 10, we read that it's his sheep. They all belong to him. These are his people. We can't go out on our own and begin the work. We won't be able to proclaim. We won't be able to to rightly and deeply feel the way Jesus wants us to feel. And certainly no one would come to know the love of Christ unless Christ, the Lord of the harvest, equips and calls and gathers them into his barn. We can't save ourselves. We can't save someone else. Pray for the work. Pray for their hearts to reflect the heart of Christ, his compassion, his mercy towards sinners. When our hearts are inflamed by his compassion, guess what will happen? Guess what will happen? As we pray, we will go out and do the work. Isn't that amazing? Pray for the laborers, and as you pray that God would prepare the laborers, he gives you the desire, he gives you the compassion, he gives you the eyes to see the need, and he sends you out. Because that's exactly what happened in chapter 10. He says, disciples pray, and then in chapter says, he says, go. Go with my compassion. When you pray earnestly, God sends you out. Friends, what are we praying for in our efforts to reach the lost? Maybe I should backtrack. Are we praying at all? Are we praying at all? We need to be a a praying church. We need to individually be praying. We need to be praying together. But what are we praying in our efforts to reach the lost? Are we praying for more time? Lord, give me more time. I'm so busy, and we all are busy. 
We all have a bunch of things to do. Are we praying for opportunities? Or are we praying to increase in our knowledge? May we know, be able to rebut this argument and argue and and defend this point of view. Uh, And so when I'm ready, then I will go out. Is that what we're praying for? I will submit to you, friends, that if we commit to praying for our hearts to be impacted, then we might see what Jesus sees and feel what he feels. That we would be quickly, we will quickly discover that the problem, you know, is not in our schedules. Our schedules are fine. That there are many opportunities as it is. And that we possess truly the necessary knowledge to share the gospel with others. So often it's not the problem with lack of opportunity, lack of time, lack of whatever. It's the lack of the heart of Christ. It's about seeing the desperation of men without their shepherd and pointing them to Christ. And so as we consider this, may we pray, Lord, show us the way. Show us the heart of Christ. May we see what he sees. May we perceive deeply what Jesus wants us to perceive about our neighbors, about our friends. How many of them are lost? How many of them are subdued to the same exact system that these people were subdued to in the first century? The two friends that come knocking at your door every once in a while that we all often want to get rid of immediately because we spoke to them so many times already and we're just tired of them. Do we understand, do we see that they're entrapped in a system that dishonors Christ? Right? Isn't that the spiritual reality? Do, do we take the, the necessary time to meet and to explain and to plead with them to know the real Jesus? And the real Jesus is not our made-up portrait of Christ. It is what the Scripture presents him to be. Proclaim faithfully, perceive deeply, pray eagerly. Friends, as we close this section of Matthew, I pray that as we studied our Savior's life and ministry throughout this gospel, and as we sought together the works he had performed, that we will grow to be characterized by the very compassion of Christ himself. We can begin practicing that here. Continue to do that. And as we look upon the lost and the needy people of this world, may we proclaim faithfully as Jesus proclaimed and perceive deeply as he perceived and pray eagerly as he prayed. As Jesus was burning for and and burdened for more gospel workers, let us be burdened as well. As we trust God, the Lord of the harvest, to gather all who are appointed to eternal life. May we pray, send them out, and in turn go out with the same kind of compassion, compassion that hurts, but compassion that moves you to action, to meet the need, and to proclaim Christ. Our Father, we thank you that this is your word and this is your desire for us. May we internalize this, consider how we can practically apply this, this week, possibly even today, growing us, enlarging us the capacity to love, capacity to be merciful, compassionate, Lord, to one another here. If we don't do it here in this congregation to one another, we're never going to do it out there where it really hurts. So I pray that you would do that for us, for your name's sake and for the expansion of your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.